All right, uh, you can turn to your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 3, the book of Revelation chapter 3. We started a a little mini-series a few weeks ago, uh, going through the first couple chapters of Revelation, kind of, we introduced the book of Revelation and saw, uh, kind of, and we kind of surveyed what the book of Revelation was about, and then the last two weeks we've had uh, Brother Ronaldo teaching us on the first uh, couple letters to the churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, This morning we're going to finish up those letters with... um, the letter to the church at Laodicea, which you find at the end of chapter Revelation or chapter three of Revelation, uh, we notice though at the beginning that this book, and I think it's important and worth mentioning again, that the book of Revelation is not, again, primarily, primarily just about uh, prophecy and apocalyptic language. It's not just about predicting the future. We saw uh, a couple of weeks ago that the first couple words, the first five words of Revelation give us the, the grid and the purpose and the intent of the rest of the book. And the first five words are the revelation of Jesus Christ. So therefore, the rest of what we're reading, the rest of what what we find in this book is, uh, therefore, a, 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 a way to prove and a way to see, a way to show uh, how Jesus is revealing himself through these events, through what's going to happen. And so that's the grid. That's how we should read this book. Um, it's also revealed, though, in, this, in that first chapter we saw that when Jesus gave the Apostle John these visions, these magnificent visions of the end times, he also, he didn't just give him these visions and tell him to give them to the churches, he also wanted to include letters to these specific churches. Uh, Really quickly, look at Revelation 1 and verse 11, because this is, I think this is kind of important to understanding the letters, because Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. That's the book of Revelation. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. So he's including the visions and including letters. They're going together to um, this these churches. And I think what's been clear as we've been looking at these different letters to the churches, to each one, that I think even though they have different language, even though they have perhaps different counsel to each church, the, I think the primary message of each of these letters has been to sort of stir up the church and re-strengthen their faith. Either they had gotten passive, either they had gotten off the way, either uh, they had gotten distracted perhaps by something that was going on within the church. Jesus was telling John to write to them to sort of reorient their faith, reinvigorate their faith so that they would be back uh, sort of on the straight and narrow with uh, their Lord Jesus. And I think that's kind of what we see here in this letter too, in this letter to Laodicea. What's very clear, if you read verses 14 through 22 of Revelation 3, um, is that these Laodiceans sort of had this leisurely approach to the gospel. They were kind of uh, lackadaisical in how they approached the faith. And so I think really clearly that Jesus, through uh, the pen of John, is wanting to stir them up, reinvigorate them again. And... um, what we see here is, um, well, really quickly, Laodicea is, was a prominent town. 
uh, it lay in the, uh, in the ancient times about 90 miles east of Ephesus and about 11 miles west of Colossae. And I only bring up geography to tell you uh, this because um, in the book of Colossians, Paul actually mentions this city. I'm going to read really quickly. This is in Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. He says, Paul, writing to the Colossians, though, says this, Epaphras, which is one of Paul's sort of uh, comrades in the faith, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, the Colossians, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle, listen, and when this epistle is read among you, that is the Colossians, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that they likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So, as we have seen before, the book of Colossians is what we would call a circular letter. It was written with a primary intent for the Colossians, but it was being passed around from church to church. They would also be encouraged. There were things that were in it that were beneficial for each church. So Paul's heart, when he's writing the book of Colossians, is for them. But it's also for the Laodiceans. And so what's the intent of the book of Colossians? Well, this is in Colossians chapter 2. In the first two verses, Paul says this, For I would that ye knew what great conflict, what great struggle I have for you, the Colossians, and for them at Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, and to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. I bring that up to, because I think it's very important that we realize what Paul was doing for that letter to the Colossians and also by way of uh, secondhand for the Laodiceans and what John does here in Revelation 3. Because it's not by uh, just accident or it's not by just luck that Paul uses that word riches. He is specific about, in Colossians chapter 2, he's saying, unto all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the gospel. This is what I want you to be knit together by. The riches of the gospel. Because you see, Laodicea was an extremely wealthy town. Extremely wealthy, very, very profitable. All of its citizens were very prosperous in a really wide range of industries. It's believed most notably that they were uh, very uh, prominent in this manufacturing of this black sort of woolen cloth, which is highly valuable and highly tradable. But its profitability is further known because in the year 60 AD, the city of Laodicea was leveled by a terrible earthquake. The whole town was basically destroyed, but the entire city's infrastructure, the whole city of Laodicea was rebuilt without the Roman imperialists coming in and aiding them. They did it of their own means. The city of Laodicea was rebuilt by themselves. They were a proud, prosperous, wealthy, affluent people. 
And therefore, they had a lot of self-confidence. And I think that's why Paul, in, in the book of Colossians, and here in the book of Revelation, we see a lot of uh, references to money, to possessions, to wealth, to success. Because uh, Jesus' emphasis to this church, through both of these apostles, I think is, is, is reminding them, where is their true treasure? Is it in their wealth or is it in the riches of the gospel? Is it in all of their success in their industries and in their businesses? Or is it in the riches and the treasure that they have in Jesus Christ? And such is why Paul was, uh, in, in the, at the beginning of Colossians even, he talks about the inheritance that we have that is in the fullness of God, in the fullness of the Son of God, because he's wanting them to see that where they're investing their lives doesn't have eternal value. He's wanting them to see that where they are putting all of their efforts in their businesses, in their, in their monies, in their properties, that that's not where their true inheritance, their true treasure resided. And so uh, the, the Laodiceans, though, might have appeared really wealthy, might have appeared really successful. They had rebuilt their whole town by themselves, Jesus knew their true hearts. He knew that they were a spiritually broke people. And that's why we have this letter here in the book of Revelation. So really quickly, I want to look at three quick lessons um, about how the gospel of God kind of disrupts our leisure. Disrupts our sort of um, lackadaisical sort of uh, attitude toward the, towards the things of God. So really quickly, in verses 15 and 16 of Revelation 3, I think we see a lesson about spiritual work. Look at what John writes here. Well, let's, well, we'll read verse 14 too. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, that is Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. So, I've heard a lot of preachers use this passage as sort of like, you know, a motivational thing. That, either, are you a cold Christian, or are you a hot Christian? Are you on fire for God, or have your, has your heart become kind of frozen? And I think you can do that from this chapter, but I think... Well, more than that, though, I think he's not necessarily wanting them to choose to be a hot Christian for Jesus, because he says right there, I wish you were either cold or hot. And so he's not saying, I wish that you were either degenerate or really on fire for God. He's, I think he's saying, I want you to be healthy, because they're lukewarm. They're like lukewarm water. I don't know if you, I, I don't know about you, but I hate drinking room temperature water. I think it's just the worst and it disgusts me. And I want to, like Jesus, spit it out of my mouth. I would much rather have cold water that refreshes me, that feels so good when I drink it after I've been playing basketball or something. Now, hot water, you can put tea in it and then it's really soothing and it and it's, it's, feels nice. <laughs> but lukewarm water has really no value, at least to me, I would say. And so I think that's what he's doing here. He's saying, you guys are lukewarm. You have no, you're kind of worthless. I want you to be either cold where you're refreshing, or I want you to be hot water, like, like hot water, which is sort of therapeutic. It sort of adds, it has this soothing aspect to it. Right now, you're spiritually worthless. 
You're either not doing this or you're not doing that. You're sort of in the middle. And sort of this really kind of gross, disgusting thing, this condition of lukewarmness. So much so that God wants to spit them out of his mouth. Not that he's making them lose their salvation, mind you. It's just that he's wanting them to be stirred up by the fact that he, God, despises lukewarm Christianity. By that I mean uh, Christianity that takes in a message and they think that's all that the limits of their Christian life is for. We come to church on Sundays and we check off a box and, okay, we fulfilled our Christian duties for the week and we can go continue on our lives throughout Monday through Saturday. Now, I, I'm speaking to myself because I get very busy oftentimes during the week and I don't put my heart all the time into what I'm doing. And this is what, <laughs> this is what God is calling them to. This church had become so wealthy, so financially successful, that they had just become so uh, indifferent towards spiritual works. They weren't doing anything. They were just in the middle, kind of doing nothing. They were just sitting on their hands. They had no really burning zeal, but they weren't outright rejecting God either. They were just sort of uh, dangerously in the middle. And it's so nauseating this condition to God that he wants to spit them. Literally, the word is to vomit them out of his mouth. He's disgusted by their apathy. I like how Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher over in London, he he writes, 5,000 members of a church, all lukewarm, will be 5,000 impediments. (laughs) There'll be 5,000 obstacles to the kingdom of God. He's saying that's how dangerous lukewarmness is because they're not really doing anything, but they're not doing nothing either. They're just kind of sitting around. So therefore, I think we see that God is uh, adamant about spiritual work. He's adamant about not being lukewarm, not being lackadaisical. And he's saying, basically, where's your priority? Where is your priority in your life? The gospel of God, this revelation of Jesus Christ that we have here in this book, is where it carries with it very specific uh, implications, consequences. That when it, uh, basically what that means is that where you find redeemed people, there will be evidences of their redemption. That where you find people who have been changed and saved by the Spirit of God, you will find, as in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The more that we are involved and uh, bound and knit together by the gospel, the gospel will do its work in us. And he's saying here, where's your evidences? Because I don't see any. You're sitting on your hands doing nothing. The Laodiceans appeared to be okay, They were just kind of okay with the status quo. They were kind of okay being just spectators to the kingdom work of God. And God's saying, no, that's not good enough. (laughs) Don't sit on your hands and do nothing. Be a spiritually healthy church. A lesson about spiritual work. But secondly, too, uh, very quickly, a lesson about spiritual wealth. Look at verses 17 and 18. So, He's, uh, John is writing to them and he's uh, 
trying to get them off of their seats to do something with the gospel that they've been given. And he says, Because thou sayest I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. These Laodiceans, as we uh, mentioned earlier, they lived extravagant lifestyles. They were prosperous, they were wealthy, and they enjoyed uh, luxuries and leisures that not a lot of other cities enjoyed. But they enjoyed them to a fault because for all of their wealth and for all of their prosperity, they were blind to who they truly were, to who they were in the eyes of God. They just, uh, they say, uh, they're making this testimony that this is, this is their reputation. I am rich in increase of goods and have need of nothing. That's a, a dangerous declaration. To say that you have need of nothing. I am self-sufficient. I have everything that I need. I don't need anyone else's involvement. I don't need anyone else's uh, coming alongside me and telling me what I need to do or change. Wealth had made them apathetic. Wealth had made them indifferent towards the things of God. And had also blinded them to their true spiritual need. They had considered themselves uh, sort of financially and spiritually wealthy. They were spiritually rich. They said, I don't need anything. We don't need to do anything uh, more than what we're already doing. But in God's eyes, he says, you aren't wealthy or well off at all. You are wretched. You are spiritually bankrupt. You don't have anything upon which to boast except for my grace. So where are you boasting in? <laughs> That's what Paul says in Romans too. Jesus' uh, reprimand of these Laodiceans the, uh, here is because of their faith. He's getting at their finances, yes, but he's more so getting at their faith. Because their finances had just totally uh, misplaced their faith. Their faith was in themselves. Their faith was in their uh, business, in their industry. It had given them this sense of security, this sense of uh, self-sufficiency, this sense of that they have done it, they have accomplished this thing, that we've rebuilt the city. We don't need God's intervention. We don't need to be about God's mission. We have done this. And I think this is sort of the classic pattern of people who are blessed by God, sort of mistaking that blessing for our own abilities. I have to confess to you that this is an ongoing struggle for me. That's how the devil works. He waits till you're up really high and get ready because you're going to get fallen. <laughs> you're going to get tripped up. Because look, the nature of our hearts is that we have done this thing. We are self-centered. The, the, the great reformers in the 1500s, they called it, they called it um, basically they, they were liking us to navel gazers. <laughs> we're always looking down at ourselves. And so what, uh, that's exactly what these Laodiceans had done. They thought that they had done this. They had accomplished this. They don't need God. Their profitability had made it to where they weren't rich towards God. They were rich towards themselves. And what they had done, their industries, their businesses, etc. And I think when we get to that point, when we too confess, I have need of nothing. 
I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I'm okay, I don't need anything. That's when we need to pray for not just the Spirit's grace, but the grace to open our eyes to show us how desperate we are. We don't just need the grace of God to meet our need. We need the grace of God to show us our need of grace. (laughs) And so uh, that's really, I think, what he's getting after here. You don't know how far off that you are. And that's why he counsels this church. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint to thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. It's really easy to see how he describes them wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked and see how he meets those needs perfectly in verse 18. You are miserable, buy of me gold. You are naked, buy of me a white raiment. You are blind, here's eye salve to, that thou mayest see again. God's gospel perfectly meets their needs. But I think what's even more amazing is that word buy there in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. And buy those rest of those things that he mentions there. Buy is the same word as redeem. The same word as to buy back. So essentially what John is getting them to see, uh, find your treasure in the redemption of God. In God's redemption of you. He has redeemed you. He has bought you back. Just like in Isaiah, they talk about Isaiah and how you can come and buy of me uh, well, let me, let me look at that verse really quick. Um, Isaiah 55, verse 1. The prophet Isaiah says this, which is very much like this verse. He says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's talking about redemption. It's talking about salvation. Come buy, come uh, buy back what you have lost and buy back for free. (laughs) Because Jesus has already bought you back. As it says, if you look over in Revelation 5 and look at verse 9, this is that same word buy is in this verse. He says, and then they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed and hast bought us back to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So he's saying here again, uh, your treasure is where you think it is in these monies. He's saying, find your treasure in the redemption of God, in the blood that has bought you back. That's where your treasure is. So rather than investing their time and their money money and their energy in increasing their industries and the reaches of this world, he is saying to them, Jesus is saying to them through John, to invest in not earthly wealth, but spiritual wealth. Invest in the gospel, as he says in Colossians, in the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the gospel. (laughs) And that's where we come to Lesson number three here in Revelation 3. So we saw a lesson about spiritual work and wealth. And here we see number three, a lesson about a spiritual welcome. Look at verses 19 through 22. John continues and he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. 
Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. These are welcoming verses. The Spirit of God is welcoming them back into fellowship with Him. And that's why I think this is an amazing lesson. To see that all of these really sharp disciplinary remarks of this church are all bathed in the love of God. He's not coming at them as a person who is just out for punishment, out for revenge, out for making sure they get corrected. He is loving them. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Love there, meaning uh, giving the sense of a a deep passion, a deep interest, a deep, really uh, passionate affection for this church. He isn't sort of lamb-blasting them and and ridiculing them to a degree that they are just uh, totally uh, uh, feel wasted and worthless. He is coming alongside them Uh, often how a parent would. He's loving them as their father because he is their father. Not out of a spirit of frustration, but out of love. I have to tell you, I'm learning this already uh, with my daughter, who's not even two years old, (laughs) that it's sometimes really hard to discipline them. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to correct her and I almost laugh because... It's, I, I don't know, and it's just really hard to correct her because she's being really cute and really sad, and I know I need to be stern, but I want to kind of laugh, so I have to cover my mouth and not laugh. But I'm also learning, too, that, you know, that stupid phrase that parents would tell you that this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Um, I'm learning that and how true that is. <laughs> how true it is that I don't want to give her a little pop because I don't want to see her just totally like melt and make my heart melt because she has me wrapped around her finger. But um, it's out of love that we do that. It's out of love that we discipline. It's out of love that we correct. And such is what God is doing here to this church. He's loving them. He's coming alongside them, and he's not uh, demeaning them. He is disciplining them. As he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Essentially, he is, he, he's wanting to rebuke them, as we've seen, out of their leisurely lifestyles, out of their sort of lackadaisical approach to the gospel, get them to see the urgency of this message. That you can't just sit on your hands and be lukewarm. What are you, uh, what are you doing to show forth the love of God? That the, the love of God, as John, the same apostle, writes in the letters, that, that, that is shown forth in love, in deed, in action, in truth. How are you doing that? You can't do it if you're lukewarm. Because that's not a spiritually healthy position to be. But I love how he invites them. Because he follows up this correction that as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten with this invitation to a renewed fellowship. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He is coming after them. Another incredible sign of grace to me. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking at the door. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He brings up a, he brings up repentance 
but he brings he says that this repentance will lead to restoration but he calls to mind this beautiful picture of dining with us I will come into you, I will come into your house, this, your house of your heart, and I will dine with you and he with me, he says. And not only is this a wonderful image of feasting, of dining, and feasting and, and dwelling and dining like this were a huge events in the first century, but also I think it gives me a stirring reminder of Christ's own body that we as Christians spiritually feed on. And by that I mean the, the word sup here in verse 20 is the same word that's used when uh, Jesus himself is breaking the bread in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper. It says, and he, when he says, and he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This, is, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, the same word, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. And so it is, I think, that the the great remedy, the remedy for uh, breaking us out of our leisurely lifestyles, our, our, our lukewarm faith, is the gospel of God's body for us. The good news that Jesus has assumed our punishment on the cross for us. Come in and dine with me. Sup, feast on my body that was broken for you. That's how we get shaken and stirred out of this lukewarm state. Out of a remembrance of this gospel of God for us. Out of a remembrance of the gospel of a God who welcomes sinners because he took their sins on as his own. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that the one who knew no sin was made sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. I think this is what John is passionate about. And I think it's easy to see the parallels between this church here and the modern day Christian church. We are, there are... (laughs) Churches all across this country are wealthy out the wazoo. I ask myself sometimes that what are they doing with all of that wealth? They have multi-million dollar budgets and they're making, building more uh, structures on their campuses or whatever. Or they're building more multi-site campuses. And that's okay if they feel led to do that. But what are they doing to love one another in deed and in truth other than just increasing their budget from four to five million dollars one year what what are they doing are they are they in love with their industry or are they in love with their inheritance that is in Jesus Christ I think this is a letter this letter especially to me is tailor made for where we are as a church in the 21st century because how often are we guilty of being lukewarm? I, I have to confess to you, this is me. I think that I can uh, check off boxes and come to church, make an appearance, and then the rest of the week is fine. I don't need to live for Jesus. Because I've done my duty. I can just care about myself. I don't have to talk to that person that I meet at the gas station. I don't have to talk to that person that I come across in the grocery store. I don't have to go out of my way to show forth the love of Jesus because I've done my spiritual duty. 
how, it's so easy to be this sort of, I call it comfy, cozy Sunday Christians, because we come to church on Sunday, and then we don't really do anything with that Sunday ever again. So we have to come back on Sunday, and then we don't really do anything with that message. We don't do anything with that truth. And this is not that we're all going to be preachers, but in a way we all are missionaries. The old song, be a missionary every day. Remember that song? I don't know. Maybe I was just learned that song. <laughs> be a missionary every day. Anyways. I, I, I shouldn't sing that song because I... Anyways. But as silly as that little kid's song is, we all are missionaries. We are all evangelists. We have all been given the evangel. The evangel means good news. So evangelist is literally a good news specialist. Are you specializing in the good news? Or are you specializing in your profits, in your success, in your business? This is not to say that we shouldn't be good businessmen, but where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Where is your priority? The luxuries that the Laodiceans enjoyed had misplaced their priority, had misplaced their faith to make it and put it in themselves. So John, inspired by the Spirit, is urging them to find their inheritance, find their success, find their treasure in the gospel of God for them. That's what they are to feed on. That's what they are to feast on. That's what they are to have as their only hope, their only home, their only haven, their only uh, foundation. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is what you are to find your wealth in. So I... I just in, as a way of closing, is where is your priority? Me, I have to readjust all the time. I don't know about you, maybe I'm just weaker that way. Where's your priority? Where's your faith? Are you uh, healthy? Are you living for Jesus in a, in a cold way, in a, in a refreshing way? Or are you living in a way that's therapeutic, that's soothing people? Or are you lukewarm? Are you in the middle? Jesus is trying to stir them, and I think Jesus is trying to stir us too, to feast on himself. Let's pray.